Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience and produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest agricultural innovation network. This episode is part of a series that examines the relationship between climate and security. And in today's conversation, we discuss the key question of how one measures the relationship between climate variability and peacefulness or insecurity. The episode kicks off with some introductory remarks by Grazia Pacillo, senior economist at CGIAR Focus Climate Security. I then introduce our panelists and moderate a discussion before we take some questions from the audience. This episode offers some very helpful insights into both why we need to get better at measuring the impact of climate variability on security and how we may do so. I think you will enjoy it. And there will be several more of these live episodes on the topic of climate and security in the coming months. To participate and register for the next event, please click the link in the show notes. All right, enjoy this special episode. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Grazia Pacillo, Senior Economist and Scientist at CGR Focus Climate Security, and I will be the host of this webinar titled Measuring Climate Security, Are Peaceful Countries Immune to Climate Security Threats? The world is significantly less peaceful now than it was 15 years ago. The 2021 Global Peace Index report shows that the average level of global peacefulness deteriorated for the ninth time in 13 years in 2020 due to increased political instability and civil unrest fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic. Climate variability and change also accelerates this negative trend by multiplying socioeconomic risks and insecurities, such as food insecurity, forced migration, displacement, inequality, among others, which are ultimately the root causes of instability, tensions and conflict. To give you some numbers, last year, more than 50 million people were hit by climate-related disasters and the COVID-19 pandemic, and droughts, Floods, storms were the primary drivers of acute food insecurity in 15 countries, with approximately 16 million people affected. Furthermore, recent East estimates report that approximately 971 million people live in areas with high or very high climate exposure. And of this number, 41% resides in countries marked by low level of peacefulness. Despite growing recognition of the potential of climate to amplify existing conflict dynamics or even create new ones, the climate insecurity communities have thus far worked in isolation, ignoring the complex multidimensional and dynamic linkages between these two phenomena. To overcome these sectoral silos, it is essential to develop analytical tools that look at climate and conflict risks and how they interact in a systematic integrated manner. As a key priority, this involves measurements and indicators that are sensitive and responsive to climate security risks. 
current peace and security measures and indicators do not adequately address the change, variability and impact of climate on socioeconomic risks, risks that can lead to conflict. There is, therefore, a need to correct this imbalance. And this is particularly important not only for those countries where climate and fragility already intersect, but also for many supposedly peaceful countries around the developing world, which are regularly exposed to a set of diversified risks that can have a remarkably high destabilizing potential as the climatic crisis intensifies. This is even more important if we think that when it comes to climate action, existing strategies, tools and implementation procedures are unlikely to capture the wide range of context-dependent security risks that can arise from the climate impacts. While an increasing number of climate interventions, investment policies and programs target fragile and conflict-affected countries, these activities are often blind and less responsive to the context in which they operate. This can lead to the unintended consequences of reinforcing structural and contextual drivers of conflict. Indeed, several examples exist of conflict-insensitive adaptation measures that have increased conflict potential by damaging economic prospects, undermining political stability and amplifying inequalities and grievances. Therefore, to reduce the potential harmful effect of climate action and ensure that it, it positively impacts people and communities, there is the need to design and implement climate investments, policies and programs in a climate security-sensitive manner. Climate security sensitivity can indeed unveil the potential peace-contributing impact of climate action, thereby addressing the root causes of conflict and fostering societal levels of peace. Understanding, managing and addressing climate security risks requires methodologies, tools and processes that function, function across se sectoral silos. However, given the multidimensional nature of these risks, strengthening cooperation and partnerships between international, regional, national, local actors and policymakers is key for effective integrated responses. But these are just some of the issues that we would, we would like to discuss with you today, as the objective of this webinar is to try and unpack with our esteemed panelists our current research and operations can accurately account for the role of climate as a threat multiplier. I do hope you will enjoy the discussion today. Thank you. Welcome all. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I'm editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. Today's conversation about measuring the relationship between climate and security is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast and is part of a series of episodes produced in partnership with CGIAR to explore the relationship between climate variability and security challenges. There are a number of excellent and academically rigorous ways to measure peace and conflict. And these have helped policymakers and analysts for years. I've used some of them in my journalism myself over the years as well. Um, However, many of these evaluations and indexes have so far generally excluded the role that climate can play in promoting peacefulness or, on the other hand, sowing instability and insecurity. Our goal in today's conversation is to inject a climate security perspective and how we measure peacefulness and the potential risk of conflict. What data might we include and how might we use that data to inform policy and programmatic decisions? 
On hand to discuss these questions and more is a great group of panelists whom I will now introduce. Sonia Vermeulen is Director of Programs at CGIAR. Welcome, Sonia. Serge Strubance is Director of Europe and the MENA region at the Institute for Economics and Peace. Welcome, Serge. And Emery Brousset is Lead Measurement Advisor, Emergency and Transition Service at the World Food Program. Welcome, Emery. So I will kick off with a few questions for the panelists, but I will also leave time for audience participation. To ask a question, please simply write your question in the comment field of the live feed, wherever you are watching it, and we'll get to your questions in just a little bit. Uh, for now, let us kick off. And uh, Serge, I'm gonna ask uh, all the panelists the same question, but I'm gonna go to, to you first. So here we go, Serge, why is integrating climate impacts into peace and security measurements and indicators important? And how should these be used to design, monitor, and implement climate security sensitive projects and programs? Over to you, Serge. Thank you very much, Mark. Uh, well, ecological threats reinforced, accelerated, and exacerbated by climate change only one of the multitude of strategic factors influencing peace and security. And all those different factors are interconnected in a system systematically. So therefore, I think understanding system thinking is really key to understanding the impact of those different strategic factors on peace and security. Gracia has spoken about this decreasing peacefulness that we measured at the Institute for Economics and Peace, you know, Global Peace Index, for the past 10 to 12 years. Well, the main driver for this decrease in peacefulness is the number of conflict and the intensity of conflict that we have seen in the past decades. Um, a lot of those conflicts are also related to the effects of climate change, to the absence of resilience to those ecological threats. Uh, just to give you a figure, over the past decade, we saw an increase by 270% of the water-related conflict or water-related disputes. And we have also seen that the majority of those disputes are not settled through mediation, but settled through violence and settled through conflict. And the two countries in which this is most present were Iraq and Yemen, also two countries affected by a lot of other conflicts over the past decade. So um, I think if we, to stay in the same region, at least to take the broader region and maybe the hotspots of ecological impact and uh, the hotspots of what we measure also, you know, ecological threat register is looking at the interplay between ecological threats and the resilience of countries to absorb those, those threats. So we can see that a lot of violence generated on the African continent, for example, is a result of a fight for access to resources, water resources, land resources, other type of uh, of resources. And I would say that you know this per permanent struggle is uh, the, uh, developing or leading to uh, the development of a lot of social grievances that can eventually then lead to the use of conflict. And that's exactly what we have seen in our ecological threat register that conflicts. Uh, that countries most affected by ecological threats, less resilient to those threats, are also con uh, countries that are also really in impacted by a high levels of violence and potential for conflict. So, therefore, I think that the link between, you know, these ecological threats reinforced, exacerbated by climate change, the low levels of resilience and high levels of, of, uh, of violence, those are all systematically interconnected. Thank you. Thank you for kicking us off, Serge. Emery, uh, over to you. Same question. Why is integrating climate impacts into peace and security measurements and indicators important? And how should these be used to design, monitor, and implement climate security sensitive projects and programs? 
Thank you. Thank you, Mark. You know, um, both Serge and Grazia mentioned the issue of complexity in systems thinking. We, we all know that climate is an enormous uh, pressure, climate change, and uh, it's a factor in a lot of conflicts. The biggest challenge is this correlation we have between climate change and levels of conflict. Uh, I, I'm advising and working with WFP, the World Food Programme, to see how we could better capture this, this correlation. And the way we are looking at it is to look more and more at the local level, trying to connect risks that the population faces at the household and community level with the risks that we can see through national level climate change indicators. And, and this uh, word risk is quite key there because uh, that's, that's shared both in terms of local level analysis and understanding. It's an ethnographic way of approaching reality and also from these more national level data sets that denote uh, climate change. So it's, it's that dual lens, local level, national level, that will allow us to get closer to a real correlation. Thank you. Thank you, Emery. Uh, let's bring Sonia into the conversation now. Uh, same question to you, Sonia. Thanks very much. So we've, we've heard um, from the speakers the way in which climate is a threat multiplier. And, you know, as, as, as we know, um, particularly from Emery's work, that a lot of this is through food. So if we think of how peace, food and climate link up together, I think what we've seen a lot of is both the evidence and the political acknowledgement of the connections between food and climate. Just this morning, we had the first press release around the new assessment report, AR6 of the IPCC. And it's, again, pointing to these massive climate threats to agriculture and food production. Um, the IPCC also produced a special report on this last year. Similarly, the links between peace and food, acknowledged um, through a resolution of the UN Security Council back in 2018, and really reinforced, I think, last year by the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to WFP. So those links are clear. Now, the other part of that circle we need to bring in is, is the climate, um, the way in which it's, it's driving peace um, and is also um, uh, being, being driven by um, peace in turn, conflict leading, leading to um, uh, disruptions in, in human activity and so on. So what, what do we need to do here in terms of using our measurement tools, our indices, um, our um, indicators better? Well, the real gold standard that we have here is around preparedness. So getting better at prediction, at projection, early warning and, and foresight. And I think um, I'd like to draw attention both to the short term and the long term. So in the, the short term, really looking literally a couple of months ahead, we need to get much better at seeing where these perfect storms are, where these hot, stop, hot, hot spots will arise. We're often working in imperfect data universes when we have conflict situations. So there's a real ask for us there to think about how we can use real-time data better um, around assuring food security, looking for the places and the people um, where attention is most needed. 
The other part is the longer term. We've got very good long-range forecasting now of what's going to happen in the world. Serge referred to water security. For example, we know that today about 1.7 billion people in South Asia um, face extreme water stress. But we also know that by 2040, um, now in Eastern Asia and the Pacific, where we're really not seeing water stress at all, they will be joined by another 1.7 billion people in those geographies, you know, giving us a lot of long-range insight as well um, into likely future climate-related conflict. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sonia, and thank you for referencing the new IPCC report, which uh, was just released a few hours before we went live. I suspect we'll be uh, returning to it uh, later in the discussion. Uh, Serge, I am going to turn back to you. Uh, what obstacles lie in the way of measuring the effects on social of climate, pardon me, on socioeconomic and political risks? And how is the Institute for Economics and Peace addressing these challenges? Thank you, Mark. Well, you know, there is an increasing data availability on ecological threats and conflict. This is what also led us to start producing an ecological threat register last year, where, I, as I said, we looked at the interplay between the impact of ecological threats, and those threats would be resource scarcity and the effects of natural disaster, and we linked that the interplay with resilience. Well, you know, those data on ecological threats and conflicts are uh, more and more available. Uh, also, the, we can look at the interaction, uh, and we need to see that this is very complex and also very challenging. The academic literature, or the literature as such, and the research on the interlinkages between the socio-economic, political, and conflict uh, impact, and those ecological threats, but also the effects of those ecological threats on all these other factors, well, this literature is relatively new. So we are kind of pioneering here, looking at this interplay between uh, the impact of economical, uh, ecological threats and the effects of climate change and it's the effects that it will have on peace and security. And so as data develops, then we will also develop the understanding of the relationship between climate and socioeconomic and political risk. At IEP, we have begun to measure ecological threats also at the sub-national level to better facilitate or to better understand the impact uh, within and across countries. So basically looking at regional potential impact also and you know identifying the countries and areas most at risk of ecological threats and when we couple this to the low level of resilience well this is allowing us to also uh, look at uh, you know potential rising water stress food insecurity that could then eventually lead to conflict and instability and already gave you you know the figures about that uh, before potentially water related uh, conflict we have also identified that the countries with the lowest levels of peace, of positive peace, are those with also high levels of food insecurity and water stress on average. Therefore, I think it is important for us at IEP to identify those countries as risk, at risk of those threats, of those threats, and that would allow us, and definitely not only us, but also policymakers and decision makers. This would allow early intervention, which could then prevent a vicious cycle of resource conflict deteriorating resilience and susceptibility to other and more impactful ecological threats to, to kick in. So I think this is where um, this is where it is important for us to come in with this measure of resilience to link this to the impact of ecological threats reinforced and exacerbated by uh, climate change and therefore identify those countries who will be most at risk to eventually uh, social collapse. Uh, from the ecological threat register, we see that about 
you know, the 20 countries most impacted, less resilience, well, you will find those 20 countries back also at mm. the bottom of our global peace index, within the bottom 30, bottom 40 of the global peace index. So clearly different factors there reinforcing each other and definitely leading to more destabilization and eventually also more uh, violence. Maybe one additional note there. I think it is also very important to understand the economic impact of violence in general. And for, for example, when you look at the three hotspots identified in the ecological register, which would be the Sahel region going from Mauritania down to Somalia and even eventually also down to mm. Yemen, another zone a little bit more to the south in, um, in Africa, ranging from Angola down to uh, Mozambique and Madagascar, the third zone reaching from country like Syria, Iraq in the Middle East, over to Central Asia and South Asia to Afghanistan, Pakistan. Well, when you look at these three uh, zones, of course, you will find those countries uh, at the bottom of our peace index, but you will also see that these countries really impacted by violence and other uh, factors, well, invest about 30 to 40% on average of their GDP in countering, in assessing this violence. When, mm. when a country invests that much of its GDP to just one item, there is no other priority. And therefore, also for those countries, you know, a sustainable future or coping with the effects of climate change is not really a priority at the moment. So we need to have an impact on resilience and we need to make sure that sustainable future becomes a priority for those countries and also enabling those countries to turn this into a priority. Thank you. Thank you, Serge. That was a helpful frame for the rest of this conversation. Uh, Emery, I will turn to you. Uh, how should peace and security indicators factor climate impacts into their analysis? And what are the most needed data that could help a country measure the, its capacity to adapt, manage, and respond to climate security risks? It's uh, There's a lot of work going on today around the notion of resilience and how to measure resilience. Uh, the big stumbling block there is that even though it's about the ability to respond to shocks and stressors, we still have difficulty pinning down which shocks and which, which uh, stressors uh, have the most impact and also predicting them, anticipating them. And, and climate uh, security, in a way, provides that kind of uh, greater predictive uh, content. It's, it's easier to see coming. And as such, it could inform a lot of the uh, peace-related initiatives. For, uh, for the World Food Programme, what we're trying to do here is bring in the uh, move away from a household and community level of analysis to integrate that higher national data sets, including through uh, mapping, geospatial mapping, for example, and linking those, those uh, levels of analysis. And, and that will uh, increase the ability of, of uh, programming to, to, to address the shocks before, before they arise. So helping reinforce the resilience of, of local actors. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Emery. Now, Sonia, we will turn to you and, and help us kind of bring this back home to CGIAR. What actions should the CGIAR take to ensure that its research programs and policies are sensitive to climate security risks? Th thanks very much. So for listeners who don't know, CGIAR is a global agriculture and food research network working very specifically on um, resource-poor, small-scale uh, producers and consumers around the world. 
Um, and I think the answer to your question, first of all, lies in our new mission statement. We specifically outlined that for the next decade, what we're going to be doing is science that enables transformation of food, land and water systems in a climate crisis. There was a lot of argument over that expression, the climate crisis. Did we buy into it? Was it too much of a focus on climate um, instead of the other major risks um, facing the world within the next decade? And actually what we decided was that that climate crisis really encapsulated the myriad of interacting risks that are really being faced within um, the agri-food systems that, that serve the world's poor. So we saw this as uniting. And, and I think one of our challenges is also to get over to people that when we're talking about a climate crisis, climate is not environment. We're not where are the people why are you no longer a people-oriented organization? That climate is very much about people. And I think that the climate security agenda really brings this home, both at the policy level um, and also at the local community level. So in terms of what we, we want to do in our programming, it, it's partly a matter of what we do and then also a matter of who we work with and who we do work for. So in terms of partnership building, uh, the two, two organizations on the call today with me, um, Institute for Economics and Peace and uh, the World Food Programme are key new partners. And then, of course, there are others, the International Organization on Migration, for instance. And the type of work that we're trying to develop is exactly um, in that space where we're joining up food, um, peace and climate within that bigger space um, of the, the risks and socio-political contexts fa facing um, our target populations. So just to give you some examples of the kind of work we're developing. So working with the World Food Programme um, on developing climate risk profiles for a number of countries. So this is the kind of being, being able to um, inform the design of interventions and policy in countries uh, the, the, two, the two pilots there are in Pakistan and Somalia. Another um, area of work is the Africa Climate Security um, Observatory. This is looking at, is, is climate change a real threat multiplier and how and where? Looking for those geographic hotspots, but not just geographic hotspots, population hotspots. Who, who are the people, the households, the, the social groups? who are most at risk and what packages um, of options um, can, can be put in their service. Thinking very much about packages, not about kind of silver bullet type of solutions, which as Grazia likely, rightly pointed out, um, uh, can sometimes lead um, to perverse consequences. So the Africa Climate Security Observatory work um, is active in Zimbabwe, Sudan, Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, Senegal, and Mali. And we're obviously working very much in tandem with, with governmental efforts um, in those countries, joining up with agencies um, such as the NEPAD, CADUP, the, the, the Pan-African um, agenda around improving food security. Thanks. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sonia. Uh, Serge, we are going to uh, turn back to you. Uh, how can positive peace measurements be used as a basis for assessing a country's resilience to climate shocks? And how can these measures be implemented to better predict conflicts in the face of climate instability? And if I can ask you to take 10 seconds at the start of your answer to define what we mean by positive peace for people who are unfamiliar with the term. Thank you very much, Mark. Well, positive peace is a concept developed by Institute for Economics and Peace, and it's about the attitude, the structures, and the processes that you need to put in place to create, maintain, and develop peace. And we have seen, you know, through when we when we developed this uh, systemic approach, or system thinking to peace, we see peace as a system. We have identified eight different pillars, all interconnected, and of course, the interconnection of those pillars is stronger than each of the pillars itself. So when we developed this, we of course saw that uh, this would uh, be a means to develop peace and stability. In some, in some countries, but we have also seen that, you know, other indicators became much more stronger when uh, countries were increasing the levels of positive peace. All the ESG indicators would go up, levels of happiness and well-being, but what we have also seen is that the resilience to ecological threats, well, they, this would also go up and countries that would be, that would have higher levels of positive peace, well, they would be less impacted by natural disasters, for example. So, the, the damage to infrastructure, the number of people who would uh, have to migrate or be displaced, this would be much lower. And, and then, of course, the time to re for recovery would also be much uh, shorter. So to come back to your question, I think that, uh, you know, the peace measurements are used as a basis to look at resilience, climate shocks, and also the implementation of better predict conflicts. Well, I think that um, to dampen the impact of future ecological shocks, it is imperative to today, increase the levels of resilience in the most vulnerable countries. So I think we need to understand that when it comes to resources, accessibility to, to resources or to the devastating impact of natural disasters, this is not something that you can easily have, uh, I would say, direct impact on. So let's also turn to the resilience of countries because this is about decision makes, you know, development of different policies, development of good decisions, development of good governance, making sure that countries can develop levels of resilience that would allow them to absorb external shocks such as these ecological threats and the effects of uh, climate change. So let's have countries better prepared for those shocks, having stronger capabilities to deal also with the after effects of those shocks. And therefore, uh, that's uh, one of the parts, uh, one of the main issues within the ecological threat register is to identify the potential shocks facing countries, but also the resilience of those countries and the measurement of this resilience is done through the levels of positive peace and the measurements of uh, positive peace. Um, so we consider positive peace as to be an accurate measure of socioeconomic resilience, also to ecological threats, as I just explained. So within the ecological threat register, we have identified 31 ecological hotspot countries. So, you know, I already spoke about those three zones before. Mm -hmm. And they combine high levels of ecological threats with low and stagnant socioeconomic resilience. So basically no improvement on the positive peace index. Over 1 billion people, up to 1.2 billion people live in these 31 uh, countries, live in these hotspots at the moment, and therefore could be, uh, I would say, prone to some form of displacement in uh, the, the coming years. What we have also seen is that depending on the levels of positive peace, well, nations will um, respond in a different way 
to existing threats or to shocks when they when they occur. Just to give you a, an example there, well, let's take the earthquake in T. Uh, well, this caused widespread destruction and also triggered a very dull spiral leading to social chaos and a breakdown of flow and order and um, unfortunately leading to the events that, uh, that occurred there in uh, a couple of uh, weeks, a couple of months ago with the president being killed in his own, his own home. But in contrast to that, when you take about the same period of time, Japan, were then also looking at the aftermath of an earthquake and a tsunami with a nuclear power plant, power plant meltdown, contamination of large areas with the radiation. Well, despite of the fatalities and destruction there, this incident did not fuel any social or political instability. The Japanese government was able to address both the destruction mm. from the tsunami and also contain the damage from the meltdown of the nuclear plant. Thank you. So they, it also coordinated an effective program for economic recovery. And there, when you look at this, you clearly see the difference in immediate impacts and repercussions, but also on the long term, the reper repercussion that this could have. So clearly, uh, countries with high levels of resilience will be able to absorb the shocks and will be able to, I would say, uh, not turn into a more destabilized place and a more uh, violence, violence place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Serge. Uh, Emery, I'm going to turn to you. So earlier, and, and once again, uh, Serge referenced areas in the world, regions in the world that are most at risk, that are ranked lower on the ecological threat register. Many of these regions, like the Sahel and the Middle East, are places where there are peace operations ongoing. Uh, so how could peace operations become more climate security sensitive, and how would they benefit from improved measurements and indicators? Thank you. The, the, I think the key there is shared context analysis. So an, an increasing ability to capture, to present, to analyze, to make decisions, common decisions or convergent decisions across a range of different actors. And uh, shared context analysis is a bit of a a slogan, <clears throat> it's something most organizations uh, verbally encourage, but it's it's difficult in practice. And um, I would put forward that the, the main key here is to take advantage of the massive data that's becoming available to us all and to push for open source data and using open source data to focus on climate security risk and on social risk at the same time. And this, this would enable peace operations to become much more attuned to local level, regional level and national level issues as they arise because of the, the multiform nature of the risks we're dealing with, a, a much sharper focus on those risks. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And it seems one recurring theme so far of this conversation is the need for more and, and better data and for that data to be used uh, appropriately. Uh, so, Sonia, I will turn to you for a scientific perspective. How could land, water and food systems science inform the development of new climate security sensitive indicators? Th thanks, Mark. I think that that's an interesting question. So, I think I'd like to divide up the areas where we already know quite a lot. And for those, the real job that we have is connecting our indicator sets in, in meaningful and useful ways. And then there are other bits, other aspects of food, land and water science, 
where actually we just need to expand our knowledge and understanding. So to give you some examples of, of the former, so where, where do we actually know quite a bit already? So we do know quite a lot about measure, measuring adaptive capacity in food systems and food security. We know the kinds of things that make a difference, diversified land use, precision water management, seasonal weather forecasts in the hands of farmers, microcredit and insurance. We know that those make a difference and we also have a sense of how much difference that they make to food security. And then we could build that into um, looking at uh, whatever kind of climate security or peace indicators we may be interested in. Um, another area is around um, women's economic empowerment. We know that women's economic empowerment is an important part of climate security. We know that agriculture has been feminized simply because men are more mobile, both in peaceful times and in times of conflict. Therefore, you know, women's economic empowerment is at the heart of climate security. And we have a women's empowerment um, in agriculture index co-developed with USAID, used very widely. It's the kind of thing that could be then connected with other indicator sets. Then, on the other hand, they're the set of things that we don't know enough about yet. Um, one of them is the impact of climate extremes and also of tipping points. AR6 draws attention to that today. What happens when all the glaciers and the Himalayas have melted? We move into a different reality. That's the one piece. And another, I think, which is very important is about rural-urban linkages the importance of food markets, the informal sector, migrant labour, remittances that collect, connect um, rural and urban areas and, and the food security um, flows between them. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sonia. And now I'm going to ask each of you one final question, the same question. And you know, each of these climate security webinars is intended to inspire action among policymakers and other related actors. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you an action-oriented question. Uh, Serge, starting with you, in your opinion, what are the top two priorities or actions that policymakers and related actors can take to better integrate climate security into their policies, programmings, investments, or measurements? Over to you for just uh, two minutes. Yeah, thank you very much. I think this, this answer will be the shortest answer I will provide today. I think what they need to understand is that, you know, when you come up with a, with a program, with a vast program, maybe for, for a region, just take an example, Let's go with the EU's green and digital program and export this to another region like the Sahel region or Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, you need to make sure that this region is really able to absorb this new program. And you also need to make sure that your program is sustainable as such and it's not creating more harm than good. So you need to make sure that you can access resources, you can recycle them, and that your old program is, is, uh, is uh, I would say, um, sustainable as such. And I think the second challenge, and, and that's really a, a conclusion that came out of several policy seminars that we organized, you know, in the aftermath of the publication of first ecological threat register, when we looked at impact on security, impact on development, the, the impact on multilateralism. Well, one common factor that came out of all those policy seminars were, was the importance of local solutions. Um, and really, really managing and mitigating the effects of climate change uh, that's really important. Well, I think the one of the major issues there is making sure that you can connect these local solutions to this really top-down approach from international organizations' policies. 
on uh, climate change in different, uh, different regions. And I think one last note there, when you look at uh, climate uh, action today, well, you see that there's a lot of mitigation and a lot of uh, adaptation, but nowhere, almost nowhere, you see reconstruction. Uh, maybe also that would be the next evolution in policy and decision making when it comes to climate action. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And before we turn to Emery, I want to remind viewers that you can ask uh, a question to the panelists by simply typing your question into the comment field of the live stream wherever you are watching it. And we will get to your questions momentarily. But first, uh, Emery, to you, give us two action items, two priorities uh, to leave us with. I would put forward two conceptual uh, recommendations. One is around linking operational risk and risk to populations. And this is about creating coalitions. Um, I, I see that there is a question about the private sector and the role of the private sector. This is an important factor in both security and in terms of uh, climate change. By reducing risk to populations, it is possible to also reduce risk to operations. This is something we're developing within WFP, which could be further developed with private sector actors and a number of other actors uh, around the world. Uh, thank you. And uh, over to you, Sonia. Uh, thank, thanks, Mark. So um, I, I think the first one is just the overall takeaway from, from today's webinar, which is make sure that your peace indices include um, environmental slash ecological slash climate risks and the ecological threat register um, of, of IEP on the call today is a great example of, of doing that. The second one I'd, I'd say is, <laughs> let, me, let me call it strategic double counting. Another way is saying, look for the synergies. You know, what, what we've seen over the last year is, is both food security funding and climate funding um, being diverted into COVID-19 um, economic um, shock recovery. Actually, when we look at this kind of nexus of risks and shocks, there are many actions you can take that will deliver on climate adaptation, deliver on food security and deliver on recovery from COVID-19. So it's, it's looking for those synergies wherever you can. Thanks. Uh, thank you. I am now going to turn the mic over to Reese Bucknall-Williams, who has been uh, viewing and moderating the uh, comments feed, and he will now answer your questions on behalf uh, of you. So, Reese, over to you. Hi, hi, Mark. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, we've had a lot of uh, chatter on the on the live stream uh, uh, link, and um, yeah, and and as we expect, the IPCC AR6 report is really driving a lot of the conversation there. So that report which came today, you know, it does help us paint a much clearer picture of the urgency of the climate crisis that we face, and that's in part due to the kind of data points that we now have. You know, we just have more data, we understand the, the situation better. So um, obviously, as we discussed today, you know, there remains perhaps too few data sets or data points about the indicators that we are considering for climate security. So I just wanted to ask perhaps for all the panelists just to briefly sort of say, you know, how they're going to perhaps maybe capitalize on this greater focus on the data uh, to strengthen our indicators on climate security going forward. Uh, let's start with perhaps uh, Sonia briefly. Yeah, th th thanks for that. And 
I actually think it's less the data that's the problem, but our ability to move from the data to information, to analysis and knowledge. So uh, to any scientists on the call today, I would like to invite you to be less shy in making the connections um, from climate through to local food security, through to urban migration and international migration and to um, peace at all of those levels. Um, the reason we're not talking about it, we probably will not even see it in AR6, is because we as a scientific community have not stood up boldly to present the analyses of um, the very things which, which our human communities are, are experiencing. So it, it's a call to us to, to make the case much more strongly um, around the um, set of causal pathways. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I, I know we have a number of other questions, Reese, but does anyone else want to quickly weigh in? Okay. Agree. Okay, uh, Reese, over to you. Thank you, Mark. Um, yeah, no, that's a great answer. Thank you, Sonia. Um, I guess my follow-up question would be to uh, Emery. Um, and you did touch upon this um, a little bit in your answer earlier, but um, I was just... I think there were some questions from the audience about the possibility of working with more unusual partners to develop, yeah, you know, more uh, develop a kind of this data-driven approach to indicators, uh, etc. So you mentioned the private sector. Obviously, I don't know if there are any other partners that you might want to mention today that you know perhaps could um, provide some, you know, insights into these indicators. Yes, absolutely. Because this is uh, this is very much a uh, the kind of issue that all actors will be concerned with. And um, in, uh, I've spoken about the private sector, companies working in mining, for example, or in agro-industry. Uh, agro but there's also peacekeeping, for working with WFP, often in the field at the same time, operating in parallel with very little shared analysis. There's always a bit of uh, concern about sharing information. Here, uh, there, there's a, a, a really important time uh, to, to begin comparing local level information and information that is coming from, from headquarters, creating common maps and, and common understandings of what the issues are. So, so um, with, at risk of, of, of uh, repeating myself too much, I would say the notion of, of risk, the notion of drivers, identifying the drivers jointly and then leading from there to different action paths, but taking into account the same evidence. Great, thank you, Emery. Um, so my next question would be uh, to Serge. Um, so we've seen that you know the climate security agenda has been uh, you know discussed at the UN Security Council and in other you know, international forums. I mean, how how do you feel that we could perhaps better connect perhaps the security institutions that support security and peace building uh, with you know other institutions that work on food and climate, etc. Like how can we kind of make them work in 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 a more synthesized way? Well, thank you very much, Rhys. I think, uh, first of all, uh, the message that we bring across to those international organizations should be consistent. And we should basically, that's a little bit what was said by Sonia before also. I mean, we need to first establish two partnerships, two types of partnerships. One, between us, academic specialists, those who are really doing the research on climate security, so that all message is consistent and we can try to speak as much as possible 
with one voice. So therefore, I would say within this nexus, it is really important to have strong partnerships like IP would have with CJR, for example, but also with WFP or with WTO, looking at trade for peace and also making sure that this trade is also ensuring a sustainable uh, future. So we need to be able to inform but also influence policy and decision makes. And the, and the easiest or the best way to do so is to uh, speak with one voice in a consistent way. The second thing that we need to do is, of course, collaborate with these international organizations. As a regional director at IEP, responsible for Europe, but also for the MENA region, that's one, one part of my job. Really, we are engaging you with the EU, with NATO. We are giving them, we are working with them on the potential impact of uh, military operation, ecological impact of military operations. We do the same with, um, with the OSCE. So basically with the regional plane, of course, my colleagues in other regions are doing uh, uh, exactly, exactly the same. And then we, of course, engage with governments and also with private sector, just as was explained by, by, uh, by Emery. And it's also very important to see them as important stakeholders in this debate. And for example, when you look at the ETR, one of the uh, conclusions that was um, most discussed with these institutions and the governments was the fact that when we look at the results of the ecological threat register, where we don't only look at the impact, but we couple it to the level of resilience. Well, out of our top 20 of countries most impacted less resilient, only two of those countries is to be found back in the top 20 of countries receiving climate aid. So there, clearly, we see that a lot of climate aid, that's about 34 billion a year, is going to countries who still have a lot of resilience to cope with the, the shocks that they are, that they are um, receiving. On the other hand, you see that countries really with low levels of resilience do not receive the aid that they should be that they should be able to receive. So that's clearly something that has been uh, extensively discussed in the past uh, twelve months for us at IEP. Thank you. We have a few more minutes for questions, uh, Reese. If you want to ask more, if anyone else wants to take on this question. Yep, excellent. Um, well, maybe a follow-up question to Serge, because you, you mentioned what well, has been mentioned in to today's debate about the sort of uh, the COVID uh, effect, um, and we've talked about sort of countries' ability to uh, withstand sort of shocks and, and their resilience. I mean, are there sort of any practical bits of of, ex of experience or advice that have come out of the you know, of the last sort of eighteen months of of how to support countries against such shocks, and how can we perhaps apply that to to peace and food, etc.? So maybe a question for Serge initially but um, everybody please feel free to, to come in on this well, well clearly the, the situation in which countries are today uh, is linked to the level of resilience so that's something we measure in our positive peace index but they're also linked to the flexibility and the strength of their economies before COVID hit so really looking at uh, economic preconditions before before the, the crisis so there again there's a clear link between I would say the impact of COVID-19 and the level of resilience before uh, before the before this impact. I think one thing is important for COVID-19, uh, and that is to uh, understand that COVID-19, as it has been said already before during this webinar, is just an accelerator of things that happened before. For example, in the Global Peace Next, we, we looked uh, last year at an increase by almost 250% of the levels of civil unrest throughout the world. Well, those socioeconomic, uh, I would say, conditions that led to this increase in civil unrest, well, they have not been addressed in the past decade, and they have definitely not been addressed since COVID hit. And COVID really is going to add to this, put a magnifying glass on those socioeconomic factors. What we are really, uh, I would say, afraid of at the Institute for Economics and Peace is to see budgets allocated for climate aid, for development aid, that now 
you know, in the aftermath of the economic crisis, in this massive injection of, I would say, cash flow into the economies, well, those budgets will be revised and will be lower than expected. And I think this is really negative for the cause we are discussing today. Thank, thank you, sir. Does any, Sonia or Emery, do you have any other comments on there? Well, well, I mean, I, I could come in a little bit around the, the, the movement from thinking around the basis of food security um, from agriculture to whole food systems. And, and that's been a big step forward, actually, um, between these, these two um, assessment reports of the IPCC. So understanding that our resilience solutions may not be in the space so much of agricultural production, even if that's where climate is hitting hardest, it will be within the overall food system. And so, you know, what we have done in CGIR is tracking a lot of the way in which public sector has responded to COVID. Um, we, have, we have seen that in terms of food supplies, in most countries, it differs everywhere, but in most places, it was less the agricultural producers who were hit, but, but more the consumers and purchasers, and particularly their, their purchasing power. Um, and the solutions, therefore, have been very much in that space of um, let's keep let's keep movement of labour open, let's keep movement of food open, let's try not to build up um, trade barriers between countries. Um, again, very very tightly linked to how how one assures um, peace in times of crisis. Thanks. Thank you. We have time possibly for one final question, if there are any. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mark. So I think my final question would be to Sonia. And, and, and as many would be aware, CJR are very busy in, in the preparation for the UN Food System Summit, but also the COP26 Summit. So I just wanted to kind of maybe ask you know, what, what, uh, you know, what are the kind of policy ask opportunities you see that those summits offer organizations like CGR, IEP and, and uh, WFP to, to try and bring in some of the sort of big climate security issues uh, into the international food and climate agenda? Thank, thank you, Rhys. So CGI and WFP have, have been obviously very active in influencing the current Food Systems Summit, particularly in Action Track 5, which is about resilience building. So I, I think um, we have collectively been instrumental in raising the idea of resilience from something that might focus purely on climate to something that focuses on the range of risks and threats in the round. Um, the Africa Climate Security Observatory that I mentioned earlier is, is one of the game-changing solutions that's been put forward at the summit um, for scaling up. Um, looking forward to COP26, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think that just yet this, uh, the, the connections um, between peace, food and climate are going to be foremost in the discussions. I think the big step forward this year will be um, it, the focus on the, the range of nature-based solutions and the, the role of food and agriculture as a solution space for mitigation. But it's a goal for us for next time. It's it's a longer term goal to make that case. Thank you. So I, I unless is anyone, uh, Serge or Emery, any last concluding remarks? Uh, 
No, we're good. Okay. Well, with that, I will profoundly thank all of our panelists and Reese and all of you watching. I will turn the camera and mic over to Grazia for some concluding remarks. Uh, please do follow Global Dispatches, World News That Matters, wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to today's conversation as a podcast and uh, follow other episodes as part of this climate security series. So thank you all. And over to you, Grazia. Thank you, Mark. Thanks a lot to our great panelists. Great discussion indeed. Um, climate change and variability have the potential to threaten the stability. This, is, uh, uh, this has been clear throughout the discussions. We know and we have uh, acknowledged the fact that in, con in conjunction and often in interaction with other socioeconomic pressures, the climate shocks that we are all experiencing, experiencing across the world are affecting food and livelihood security. And this can increase instability, tensions and conflicts. For instance, as, as Serge has mentioned many times, and our panelists as well, the Sahel region, the Middle East regions, in these regions we should we see a very low level of climate resilience that really don't do not match, doesn't doesn't really match the significant level of natural hazard that they face. And this natural hazard can potentially exacerbate the tensions and such economic vulnerabilities, such as level of poverty of inequality that are shared and more and more Amongst all of the states, include, including the uh, most peaceful ones. Hence, even, even the most peaceful countries are not completely safe amongst the uh, um, and in, in, the, in the context of a climatic crisis that is already impacting every everybody. In this scenario, security and peace indicators do not properly measure the potential potential destabilizing effect of climate risks. Few exceptions exist. We've heard about the ecological threat registered by IAP, which estimates the likelihood of ecological risks as well as other coping, coping strategies of the states. But a dedicated climate security measure that allows for a direct, a direct monitoring of climate security risks and areas uh, where, as Sonia said, the perfect storms are or where the, where the hotspots of climate security risks are is yet to be created. The scientists that we are surrounded by in the CGR, but across the world, uh, are working in land, water, food system, food systems, they know a lot about uh, how to measure climate adaptive capacity, climate resilience, and how, for instance, women can act, can be empowered to be uh, actors of change. We must use what we know to increase the synergies across different fields. And these different fields, like, like climate, climate and security, are critically important if we want to uh, increase climate resilience across the world. There is, of course, a lot that we need to know, as Sonia mentioned, is, is, for instance, critical tipping points that trigger climate and security risks. But only addressing local risks, we can mitigate higher level risks, and as Emery, uh, Emery has suggested. Practitioners, donors, investors, natural, uh, national and international policymakers from the climate and security community must work more closely together to account for interlinkages between these two dimensions and foster true sustainable climate resilience. The concept of climate resilience piece is key here. Climate resilience piece uh, is, uh, refers to, uh, can be understood as a transformative process of addressing imbalances access to and distribution of powers and resources in response to the structures driving climate and influencing experience of its impacts. There is no doubt that to potentially reduce the harmful impacts of climate and improve resilience, development and sustaining peace outcomes, we need to design and implement our programs, research and policies in a climate security sensitive manner. 
Such an approach would help CGRR and partners to gain an inadequate understanding of how climate and conflict dynamics play out in specific contexts and identify appropriate strategies and solutions that integrate climate adaptation and peace-building activities in the environmental programming. However, increasing monitoring and evaluating the climate security sensitivity of our interventions requires effective risk assessment tools, methodologies, indicators, and data that look at climate and conflict in an integrated manner. Today, we have discussed with our great panelists how we can and why we should embrace climate security in our measurement and programming. Well, I would like to quote Emery here. Often when we attempt to measure climate resilience, we stumble against our ability to uh, uh, predict the occurrence of shocks. The current climate science has a, has a great predictive potential, and therefore, compared to other types of shocks that we, are, that we have difficulties in pre predicting, we are now better equipped to act now and at very least to anticipate climate impacts and break the cycle of climate and conflict. And we can do it now very well. We are surrounded by an abundance of data and open source data. We just need to use them in the right way and support regional, national, local decision in a real-time or an almost real-time fashion. An example of this is the recently launched CGR Climate Security Observatory that is aiming to, to fill in these gaps by acting as a decision support tool that uses interdisciplinary methodologies to provide a real-time, concise, and policy-relevant climate security analysis. Tools such as the observatory can have a tr tremendous impact, peace-building potential, by supporting and informing researchers and partners on how to, to, to link the climate impacts and conflict and security uh, uh, risks. All in all, key will be making the best use of the science and the data that we have, because as Sonia said, it's not about the data. We have a lot of them, but it's about how we translate these into information and decision to break the, the cycle of climate and conflict. Thanks a lot for joining our conversation today. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to the good folks at CGIAR for putting this together. And again, to register for a future live taping of the podcast, please just click the link in the show notes of this episode. All right. I'll see you next time. Bye.